Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli. I'm excited for this episode because for the first time in like 10 days, I'm no longer sick and actually have my voice back. But unfortunately, it's Dan's turn to be a little bit sick. So he's going to power through this. And I'm hoping that you're feeling okay, Dan. How's it going? I am. I feel very fortunate to feel the way that I do after testing positive again as the day we record this recording this on a Sunday before Clay Thompson's return. You all probably won't be listening to it until Tuesday. I tested positive again for COVID after quarantining for five days, but I'm feeling relative to that fantastic. You know how much it takes for me to skip workouts. I went three full days without working out Saturday at night. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm going stir crazy. I did a back workout. I've had better workouts, but I've also had worse. So I'm happy. Did you skip leg day? I have not done legs in a, a week now. I normally do two leg workouts a week, um, but here we are. I mean, I was lucky. Uh, one of my editors, Brian Knox, shout out to him, forced me to take a second day off of work this week after I tried to come back after a day. Uh, so, I, again, I'm sure people have had it way worse. I feel very fortunate. I'm glad you're feeling better because you were sicker than I was for longer than I was. Yeah, it was it was not a fun ten days. I test I, I tested negative a couple times, but I'm I'm questioning the validity of those tests considering the symptoms I had. But that was fake, regardless, that's fake I'm, news. It's fake I'm, news. I'm good now. Yeah, something like that. But you know, it's not fake news. Are the stats that we're going to be going over in this podcast? We've already done the Eastern Conference edition, where we found one interesting, maybe telling, maybe not so telling, and just interesting stat for each and every Eastern Conference team. It's it's Western Conference Day today. So we're going to start off with Dan with the Dallas Mavericks and then alternate teams going alphabetically. I do have one for Memphis, even though it's not mine because I couldn't resist. So uh, I'm, I'm just overachieving on this episode. Wow. That's a bold statement to say before you even relayed a single one of your stats. As usual, I tried to pick stuff. It, they're more of like a theme. It's, it's centralized around one number, but they're more like a theme that's explainable. And I think this time it was a little, not harder, but the focus was, I made even more of a point to be like, let me pick numbers that make sense relative to what the team has gone through this season, because we have all these, you know, 10 day contracts, players and health and safety protocols right. at this point. So that's I how finding, I, I keep finding that I gravitate more towards like player centric numbers for whatever reason, I just can't help myself. So like I, I tended to want to like highlight a player from a team with a few exceptions where it was like, my number is more about the team as a whole. I vacillated back and forth. I tried to pick numbers that I thought weren't as mainstream. Like if I have Golden State, and like I really just want to reiterate that Draymond Green is shooting a career high, not only at the rim, but on twos that are outside the restricted area, but inside the paint, because I think that's been important to, uh, oh my God, that's been important to Golden State's offense at points. But it's like, I feel like that's known. Like a Gary Payton, his efficiency on cuts and after ball screens, I feel like that's known. So I tried to go like against the grain and, and stuff that you and I, specifically haven't talked about this one might be an exception but i feel like we need to reiterate that the mavericks still they their offense is just like not diverse or effective enough at all they rank my the, my number for this i'm going to try to remember is 28th they are or 28 excuse me they rank 28th in location effective field goal percentage which is your expected field goal percentage relative to where your shot locations are coming from they are actually outperforming that to where I think they're 19th in actual effective field goal percentage at this point, but they're just not getting enough easy shots. They are uh, 28th in the frequency with which uh, they reach the rim. 
They are 28th in transition frequency as well. Those two are definitely related. They're 30th in average offensive possession time overall. That one's per unpredictable. And they're not like this lights out shooting team when it comes to wide open jumpers. And so you're, you're looking at a, an offense with or without Doncic really, because I think there was more pep in Dallas's step at points when they were using all those 10 day guys uh, before. Um, and I, I think that sort of underscored the fact that they're not generating easy looks and then they're not necessarily making the most of the easy looks that they are generating. And so to have an offense like this, that's so reliant on when they're at full strength, what Luka Doncic can do and then what Jalen Brunson has been doing. And he's really, you know, even if you factor in Luka, like Jalen Brunson is probably the best at putting actual pressure on the basket um, from a ball handling perspective on this team. They need someone who can help improve that, which is why whenever we talk trade targets, I go back to Eric Gordon for them. They just need a, another, they need that type of guy or they need a really a second star then because if you're going to try and subsist on some of these tougher looks, you need people who can actually make them. And like Tim Hardaway Jr. is very much, with all due respect to Tim Hardaway Jr., not it. Spoiler alert, but we're going to have more on Eric Gordon in a little bit once we get to the Houston Rockets. But I, I do think as, as a follow-up there that you're kidding yourself if you don't think this has something to do with the coach too. It does, and it, it, it definitely does. But at the same time, yes, I think they've gotten away from Luka too much when he's been healthy. But you also could argue, you know, Jalen's Brunson's breakout. Does that happen under Rick Carlisle? I will say the the rim frequency. Well, wasn't it already kind of happening under Rick Carlisle? It was. Like, and I guess he's I'm just more, so hesitant to give Jason Kidd credit for anything. He's getting volume by default, and his role has just yeah. changed substantially this year. I'm not going to give Jason Kidd credit for that. Fair. I will say, though, the lack of emphasis on getting out in transition and just the rim frequency in general, those are problems that predate. Jason Kidd. And I think you can argue if you have Luca on your team, maybe you, sh- you can't use transition frequency as an accurate gauge, but it does show like some extra level of, of an offensive gear. And it'd be nice to even have that when he's off the floor, they play a little bit faster. And we saw that when he was out for a while, but it's just, and when Jalen Brunson is really the primary ball handler at the helm, you might play faster. This offense is just so it's blah. It's very vanilla still. If you want to, that might be the nicest way to put it, is that this is they're just not as efficient as last year. And that probably comes back to, did they take the ball out of Lucas hands a little bit, a little bit more often on too high a scale when he actually is on the floor. And even if we go beyond year over year, if you look two years ago, Dallas was obliterating every offensive rating known to mankind. Right. So the, the fall from that to the current lackluster offense without too many personnel changes of note is not good. I'm, I'm totally with you there. And I think another offseason, and this falls on the front office, even though it's new, we're now in the third straight offseason where they didn't make any material changes to the roster. And the core now feels a little bit stale. It does, which is hard to believe considering the level Porzingis has been playing at. I mean, Kristaps Porzingis, like, I think you can make an all-star case for him this year. It might be a little bit of a stretch, but he, he has been that effective when he's been on the court. Yeah, you, you can't make an all-star case for Kristaps Porzingis. Get out of here. No, I'm not letting – I'm not – this is like Nikola Jokic's defensive player of the year favorite type <laughs> shit from you right now. I, no, I, I think you can make a fringe case, like as an injury replacement or something. You know, if you expanded the rosters to, to 15 players, then you could you could make a case there. He, he's been He's been good enough for it. If you expand the roster to 18 players and insist that you have to <laughs> like that you have to go by front court and back court evenly split. You're still that bitter over the Knicks breakup, huh? I'm not bitter at all. I don't think he looked. What player did he turn into? 
he turned into a non-all-star. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let's move on to the Denver Nuggets, though. And I am going to highlight Jokic again here with, with no, the number 2.8. And the reason I'm doing that is because everyone knows how good he is. And yet I'm not sure it's been made clear how good he is because he is the reigning MVP. He should be in the MVP conversation right now. And it still feels like the level at which he's playing is flying a little bit below the radar because the Nuggets are struggling to break free from an around 500 record. The the story has been more focused on the personnel losses that they've had, whether it's Jamal Murray or Michael Porter Jr. And then you throw in all of the COVID-19 protocol stuff and how many bodies they're having to cycle in and out of the, the lineup on a daily basis, much like every other team. And it does feel like Jokic hasn't quite gotten enough credit for being so ridiculously dominant. So I'm using 538's uh, Raptor-based war metric here. And the difference between Jokic, who is at 9.7, and Fred Van Fleet, who is at number two at 6.8, is 2.8 points. That is as big as the difference between Van Fleet and number 15, Mike Conley. He is that far ahead of the field. Beyond that, only 11 players all of last season topped the 9.7 war that Jokic has already registered. We're not even at the all-star break and he already is submitting like a top 12 most valuable season relative to last year. He is on pace to obliterate his league best finish from the 2020-21 campaign. Thanks to drastically improved defensive metrics without an offensive drop-off, he is playing the best basketball of his career just at a ridiculously historic level and it is not getting the love that it needs to get because the Nuggets have not performed up to that same standard. I think he, and I mentioned this on our mailbag podcast last week, I think he's the MVP right now, and I think it might be pretty I decidedly. I, I'm, I do think Steph, people cite his shooting percentages dropping a lot. I think he's firmly in it, and I don't think that anything is etched in stone right now, but I think, to me, Jokic would be my MVP vote without second guessing it all that much at this very moment in the RPR, the rolling player rating MVP predictor that we use at NBA math, like he is head and shoulders above everyone else for first place. And then there's a second tier that includes Steph and LeBron and Giannis and Durant. And then a third tier that has like Trey young and DeMar DeRozan and Donovan Mitchell and all those guys. But statistically he is, he is lapping the field at this point. Just absolutely lapping it. Well, lapping it statistically. He's just, he's had, just mind-melting statistical seasons but over the past I, three or like, four years. That war metric, he the difference between number one and number two is the same as number two and number 15. Like, just think about that. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Let's move on to the Golden State Warriors, though. And hat tip, I asked friend of the pod, Jacob Bourne, what he wanted me to talk about and investigate further. That could maybe catch you off guard. And he said Golden State's rebounding. So I investigated Golden State's rebounding. Golden State is eighth in defensive rebounding outside of garbage time, uh, their defensive rebounding rate. Their last five years, though, their ranks in the past five years, 2020, 2021, 22nd, 2019, 2020, 24th, 2018, 2019, 17th, 2017, 2018, 29th, and then 2016, 2017, 26th. Golden State has not ranked in So their number is eight for this. I'm trying to remember to do that. I will say, this is also what I found interesting. Two, only the Heat allow fewer putback attempts 
per 100 plays on the defensive end. So Golden State is second in that metric. And the other thing, Otto Porter, they're statistically a wash with him when you look at their rebounding, him being on the court. He's been so good on the glass. I think even better than many who knew that Otto Porter Jr. was a good rebounder expected. And lineups with he and Draymond Green have a 79.8 defensive rebounding rate, which I don't like making these comps, but that would lead the league by a mile. And it ranks in the 96th percentile of, of lineups with um, logging at least 10 possessions overall. So their rebounding has been, I think it's one of the things that is not fallen by the wayside, but you're focusing on Draymond Green's defensive player of the year case. Everyone was focusing on Steph and shooting threes. You're focusing on Jordan Poole's breakout, Gary Payton the second. People want Andrew Wiggins to make an all-star team. Their rebounding has sort of flown under the radar, though. They're still not playing especially big. They have Kavon Looney, Nemanja Bielitsa, Draymond, JTA, Otto Porter Jr., Jonathan Kaminga. Like, those are their main frontline players. Uh, you know, Gary Payton and Steph are above average rebounders for their position, but they're not, you know, so they're not this huge team, and I don't think they really upended their roster in any way. If anything, you could argue without James Wiseman, that should be the one area in which he would definitely help them. And for them to be this good of a defensive rebounding team is truly impressive to me. Yeah, I would say the, the credit definitely falls to the wings, I would think, like Draymond in the wings, because Porter has made a big impact there. Peyton has made a big impact there, just the physicality ending possessions. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I would not have expected a, a leap quite that substantial. No, what, nor, Clay, what, what is Clay's return going to do to that? Because he was never the best rebounding swing man yeah but like if he's taking is he taking damian lee's minutes or if he's cutting into andrew wiggins minutes, andrew wiggins just doesn't rebound so look and to the point about steph shooting percentages if anyone cares i was just checking where steph ranked in scoring gravity impact this season it's still third in the league the mere concept of Who's Stephen curry is Trey and no Giannis and Jokic. Hmm. so look and that's per b-ball index it's just I don't think, and this holds true to Jokic, there's no one in the league who not having the ball, just by virtue of being on the court, has a bigger offensive impact than Steph Curry, probably in the history of basketball. I think it was Anthony Doyle, maybe, who was saying this on Twitter the other day about how like we're, we're quick to credit Steph for reinventing how basketball is played and having such a monumental impact on the next generation when it might actually be like Damian Lillard, who is the more likely candidate because as popular as Steph is, no one can replicate the way that he produces his threes. Like those relocation threes that he's so good at are just impossible to actually replicate. And it's really guys like Damian Lillard, like Trey Young, who are taking those pull-up threes from such long range with such frequency that are having the impact on the up-and-comers, which I think is an interesting thing to think about just because Steph is unique even, um, even among the unique players. Yeah, he's just, he's one of one. He's just, he's one of one. Uniqueness is, not, is technically an either-or concept. There aren't really degrees of uniqueness. But if there were, Steph would be the most unique. He is anomalous times infinity. There you go. Perfect. That's the stat. That's a, that's a great number. Are you ready to move on to Houston? Yeah. So for Houston, my number is four. And that is both the reason that they're going to get at least a first round pick for Eric Gordon at the trade deadline. And also the number of players who have played in at least 20 games and are shooting better than 40% on both catch and shoot and pull up triples while taking more than two threes per game. So the four are Eric Gordon, obviously, 
Tyrese Halliburton, Desmond Bain, and Devin Booker. And I'm curious if any of those names are surprising to you. They're not because it kind of steps on the toes of a stat I use later on, but I think it's still important. So please don't You're dig welcome. into the supporting cast of this stat too much. Por favor. Fair enough. So I'm, I'm going to say that Gordon is taking 2.9 catch and shoot threes per game and hitting 45.9% of them, which is number eight among players taking at least two per game. He's also taking 2.1 pull-up threes per game and hitting 40.8% of them, which is number seven among players taking at least two per game. Houston has largely struggled across the board. Gordon has not. He's been unbelievably good, which is why he's a reasonable fit for basically any team looking for an upgrade at the deadline. He is, I would be shocked if he is still with the Rockets beyond February. And I would be even more shocked if he doesn't bring back at least a first round pick for Houston. Yeah, there's, I've seen trades and I was talking with someone who covers the Rockets and they were, they were asking me about hypothetical trades and I was just shocked at how little they were willing to accept from him. And I, I would think you need, and it'll probably be contending teams that go after him. And so I'm thinking in my mind, if it's a bottom seven pick in this year's draft, like you probably need more than a first round pick, probably a first and a second to get him would be my guess. That would be my guess as well. His, his age, injury history, paying him 19 plus million, whatever it is next year, I get the hesitance, but I'm with you where I think it's the barrier for entry for Eric Gordon. If it's less than a first round pick, I will be surprised if they like move can, him for less than that. And we can focus on the shooting too, because that's where he's excelled so much, but that's by no means the full extent of his game. He can put pressure on the rim. He's a little bit feisty on the defensive end. He can rebound. Like there's a lot that he brings to that proverbial table beyond the shooting. It's just that he has excelled to such an extent that shooting is the easy low hanging fruit to highlight. Right. I'm, not too, I, I'm not too proud to pick the low hanging fruit. He's I think with him too, he's probably having the best passing season of his career. Is that just a, is that an actual improvement or just a matter of volume? I don't know. But your point about the rim pressure that I really just don't think is like gets talked about enough with him is 37% of his shots are coming at the rim this year. That is his highest since 2013, 2014. And among players who play his position, it's the 78th percentile. It's also not out of character when he hasn't been alongside James Harden because they very much had him camping way out because last season he was in the 76th percentile. If you go back to his days, some with the Pelicans slash Hornets when he was with the Clippers, those rim numbers were there. No, he's not like this super explosive athletic guy, but he is like beefy in a good way. He's thick. He is thick and he just gets through and he is fairly quick. So when he's healthy, he's giving you, I would say two levels of scoring, which is really important in someone who, if you want to call him a, a role player, supporting cast member might be the kinder way to put it. So I think, Maybe he, I don't know what this trade deadline is going to hold. Not that we ever do, but just with everything that's going on with the league, I don't know if that's going to, so many teams fancy themselves close to the play-in because they are. So is that going to make it harder to spot sellers or is all the, you know, the changing rosters, the revolving door of availability, does that make it less likely teams do whatever? I don't know. But if you're a contender, you need so many of them, by the way. And I guess if offense isn't what you need, but like Dallas is the team that immediately comes to mind. Even if, look, Phoenix can figure out a trade for him. They're so good, but they're dead last in the frequency with your shots coming at the rim. They are talented enough to where that doesn't matter. But you look at a playoff setting, some of that kind of hurt them a little bit last year. He can really elevate a team. And I hope we get to see him on a contender or a, a team that's better than the Rockets before the year is over. So like any other team. The Rockets went on that winning streak for a second. The Knicks didn't even have like a seven-game winning fair, streak this season. Fair. The other thing about Gordon, and this is purely anecdotal, I don't really have numbers to back this up, but it does feel like he sets up at least a step beyond the three-point arc. 
And there's value to doing that. I think the best example is like peak Ryan Anderson, where he was so comfortable setting up two feet beyond the arc that stretches out defenses just a little bit more and makes the gravitational pull that much more impactful. Houston hasn't been able to capitalize on that, but a good team will be able to. And Houston, when they were good, did capitalize on that in the past. The other thing is when you're starting from further out, that's going to give him more room to get that, you know, downhill steam if he is attacking the basket. We are on to the Clippers. And if anyone's watching this on YouTube, I have two screens set up. So I'm just glancing at what I wrote about their stat. Four. This is a basic one, but I have some granular stuff to it. They're fourth in points allowed per possession. I thought about focusing on their offense, but a team that's missing Kawhi Leonard uh, and Paul George now, it's in the bottom five of points scored per possession. How shocking is that? It's not. They're fourth in points allowed per possession this season. I think they've gotten lucky. They're fifth in opponent field goal percentage at the rim and second in opponent field goal percentage from three. I have been very impressed with their ball pressure and ability to contest shots on the perimeter in general, though. They are the best team in the Western Conference when it comes to allowing the smallest percentage of jumpers to go uncontested at just a hair over 18. And they're fourth overall in the league on that. And they've gotten lucky when you look at the opponent's uh, efficiency in those situations. But to not allow the high quality looks as often, especially from the perimeter. When you look at, you know, on their interior, they have to play small to begin with. And you have Zubats, who's your best rim protector. Uh, that's, that's fine, but it's not like elite level there. And so having that type of consistency on the perimeter, independent of your two stars, by the way, I think that's a pretty huge deal. And they could end up being a problem for someone in the postseason with or without Kawhi, who it sounds like he might come back this year per that report. I think it was from Chris Haynes of, of Yahoo Sports. I still think if they don't have Kawhi, you probably need, it'd be nice to have Eric Gordon on this team. They just can't trade a first round pick. They do need that extra offensive weapon up to really be a problem. But their defense, what I'm getting at is legit. I'm not going to, I didn't go super detailed and say, oh, the people they're allowing to shoot threes, they're just, it's smart. Those are the, those are the right people that are taking them. No, that's, it's just that they're allowing basically the, the right kinds of shots. And I do think that they are, you know, even when the shots are, are good or they're not allowing as higher quality looks as other teams because they're getting contests in. And I do think that matters in the grander scheme of their perimeter defense, even if there is a set part now has called it a lot of Jedi um, shooting defense involved there. I feel like the Clippers have been one of the toughest teams to figure out because just in terms of pure talent, they should be better than 19 and 21, but the metrics don't really suggest that. Their, their simple rating system, which looks at strength of schedule and margin of victory or defeat, they're negative. Like they should not have a winning record. And I don't, I don't know. I, I have trouble figuring this one out because the defense, like it passes the, the metrics test. It passes the eye test, but the, the team just isn't winning games. To be fair, it doesn't even pass some of the metrics tests. Like they're not all of them. Basically th- since Thanksgiving, they've been the worst defensive rebounding team in the league. And yet that still coincides with them during that span, having a top 10 defense. So there's, I totally get what you're saying about this team. Is there, they'd be impossible to figure out anyway, because we mm-hmm. haven't been able to see them at full strength. They didn't have a Baca to start the season. Marcus Moore seniors missed a ton of time. Um, they've been relying on Amir coffee, justice Winslow. They've just been all over the place, but even in the context of that, they're just tough to figure out. Are you enjoying my Starbucks product placement throughout this too? It's okay. I have a, um, or I guess you can't see it now. I have a bunch of amino energies behind me. Those, those canisters. So. I just, I need some caffeine. So I'm just shamelessly, you know, putting this on the screen. Maybe they'll pay us. Right. Maybe 
<laughs> Shout out. Let's, I don't, Starbucks, hurry up and pay us. Optimum Nutrition, hurry up and pay us. Product placement here. Do you want to take us to the, the Lakers? Lakers, my number is 43. That is the percentage chance that 538's ELO forecast gives the Lakers of making the playoffs. So as we record this, they're 21 and 19. They're in sixth place in the West. And it feels like they're starting to gain some positive momentum where LeBron James is just playing phenomenal offensive basketball. Russell Westbrook's decision-making has been a little bit better. They've kind of coalesced in Anthony Davis's absence. Some of the role players are starting to contribute a little bit more. Are we that confident in them yet? Their, their, la- their last win against a team that currently has a winning record was their overtime victory against the Dallas Mavericks on December 15th. For the season, they're five and nine against above 500 teams and 16 and 10 against below 500 teams. Per basketball reference, only the Bucs have played an easier schedule. And the Lakers SRS, their simple rating system score, is number 21 overall and number 10 in the West. To me, like that 43% chance feels fairly accurate given the strength of the middle class in the Western Conference and the lack of confidence I have in the Lakers being able to sustain this positive uptick given the toll that it has to be taking on a 37-year-old LeBron James. So my question to you is over or under 43? Over. Yeah. Yeah. I just we just because of the LeBron factor? There's that. They've gotten better play from Russ, having Monk go off when he has, and they're gonna get once Anthony Davis comes back better. And I keep coming back to the fact that they have annihilated opponents when 80s at the five and LeBron and Westbrook are on the court. And now that they've sort of unlocked the LeBron at the five combinations, think about how much better center play they get in some when it's Anthony Davis right. and LeBron playing, being able to stagger them that way. See, I, I'm with you. I, I think subjectively, I would probably put it at like 55 to 60%, but this is not a lock. And I think there's some perception that now that they're above 500 and moving in the right direction that, yeah, like the Lakers are absolutely going to make the playoffs in the West. I wouldn't go that far yet because they're one injury away. They're one negative stretch away from not looking like that team at all. Yes. I, I guess if that's how you frame it, but like so many teams now are one injury away. You could say that about the Warriors. You could say that about the Suns, Booker or Paul going out. But I'm not, I'm not even talking about the injury that you have in mind, which is a LeBron James injury. You're thinking of a think, monk injury. Yeah. I, I think if there's a monk injury, if there's a Westbrook injury, if Kendrick Nunn can't return and they still have such thin depth, if Melo gets hurt, that this team does not have the pieces to pick up the slack there. I guess I'm just, I look at the rest of the West and it's very interesting, but it's so unimpressive in the sense that the locks are Phoenix, Golden State and Utah. I don't even know. You can call Memphis a lock because they're so good right now. Like they are the least established of the bunch. They're your locks. Who is the who are the locks after that? Would you call them a lock for a play-in? You would call them a lock. Yes, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. All right. At least we're we're inching closer there. Yeah, I mean for sure. I I, the reason I picked that stat is just because I I need to push back a little bit against the emerging narrative that the Lakers have figured it out and are suddenly a, a legitimate threat in the West. Maybe they'll get there, but as it stands right now, like again, they haven't beaten an above 500 team since December 15th. We're recording this on Sunday, January 9th. That's a long stretch. And granted, you can only play who you can play because they're on your schedule. And they've won four or five games in a row at this point, but they're beating up on subpar injured teams right now. And I, I just, I think we need to, to push back against the idea that everything is, is hunky-dory in, in Lakerland right now. 
that's I don't I, is anyone portraying it as it being hunky dory? I feel like we're starting to see a little bit of it on the Twitterverse. I don't. I guess we must have different, very different timeline then. But I think it's fair to categorize them as a team to be concerned about. I'm just less concerned yep. than I was a few weeks ago, which is saying something given that. Well, I think, I think that number has risen significantly too. Like a few weeks ago, it was down in the twenties, I believe. Oh, it was. I didn't even realize I it got so. that low to them. Yeah, I think so. Let's go to the Memphis Grizzlies. My number is five. There are 65 players in the league who have used at least 50 ISO possessions this season. John Morant is fifth in points per possession in those situations. I dug a little bit deeper into this too per b-ball index he is looking at only players who've played 500 or more minutes this year which is a shit ton of players if anyone cares he's eighth in isolation impact per 75 possessions and looking at his scoring gravity which b-ball index uses playmaking ability calculated with the same gravity data that they will reference in um, the perimeter shooting section so mid-range rim and even three points. So it's taking into all levels of scoring in account with the scoring gravity data is essentially what I'm getting at. He is seventh in scoring gravity impact. He's just having a hell of an offensive year, unlike anything we've seen from him. Doing everything he's always done, plus other stuff when you look at what he's been able to do from the perimeter, specifically as a three-point shooter, and just doing everything better, even if he's done it already. This guy is fantastic. I think he's, if the Grizzlies keep this up, and this is John Morant for the entire year, he's going to crack top some of the top five. On, oh, he's going to crack the top five of certain MVP ballots, and I can't say he's undeserving. It would take an awful lot for him to get into the Jokic, Steph, Giannis, KD tier for me, but I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that John Morant finishes ahead of a DeMar DeRozan in MVP voting this season. How many point guards would you take before John Morant right now? <sighs> Steph, obviously. Steph, I'd probably take Trey. Chris Paul? Just for this season or like... Just for this season. For the remainder of this season. You could, you could count it on one hand, I think. Right. I think we're, we're starting to get to that point where it's like he's, he's firmly in that top five mix. Desmond yeah, Bain might have been stretching it a little bit when he said that he's the best point guard in the world or should be in that conversation. I don't know that we're there yet, but we're getting close. Yeah, I mean, he's not that far off. Like, I don't know that there. I don't know that there's a a real case for him to be better than Trey or Steph. Right. I do, and I think that's what makes it tough. But could you make it? Are a you case considering Luca and LeBron than, point guards? Like, Le, well, LeBron's been weird. a center, so LeBron's right. officially out of that. LeBron's like a LeBron's a point guard and a center at the same time, though. Uh, Luca, yeah, that would be that would be another fair one to note. Um, I'm trying to think of it, if we're forgetting anyone egregious. I don't. I don't. Think Monte Morris. Right. Totally forgot about him. That's my bad. Uh, yeah, Frankie Lakina. Frankie Lakina. Right. Forgot right. about him. But yeah, I mean, he's this season. Yeah. He's because in a normal year, you'd probably, you'd probably wonder about Dame. But definitely, even though Dame has been, well, I mean, Dame's out right now, they're probably going to shut him down. So you certainly want him instead of Dame. Yep. I think that's fair. My follow up stat for Memphis, though, is 105.771. And that is Memphis's current score in NBA Math's rolling team rating which looks at the last 20 games and accounts for strength of schedule and margin of victory and all that. Uh, that is the top score in the history of this franchise. That's pretty good. It sounds like they have 20 good games teams in the history of this franchise. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, I thought that was notable enough that I, I had to, to include it here. 
I think uh, I'll allow it. I don't like when you, you know, step in my territory, you know, how possessive I am and That's micromanagerial fair. that I am, but I'll allow it this time. Well, I'm going to move on to the Timberwolves then, just so you don't get too frustrated. Speaking uh, of I, teams that I can't figure out, I'm so <laughs> glad you had the Timberwolves. Right, right. Um, and I, I might've gone an, an easier route here too. My, my number is 13 and I, I wanted, much like with Jokic, I wanted to, to, to take a second just to appreciate how fucking good Carl Anthony Towns is at basketball. I think with Anthony Edwards ascending, he's drawn a little bit more attention. There's also just more attention paid to the Wolves as a whole because they're currently on pace to make the playoffs for the second time since 2004. But Towns, you know, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again, like he is a generational talent as an offensive center. And because he's not a defensive stalwart because he's missed time because he hasn't been on highly competitive teams. I just don't think he gets enough credit for being just this unbelievably talented. You can make a case that he is one of the count them on one hand, best offensive centers of all time, uh, just in terms of his pure skill set. Uh, so right now towns is averaging 24.1 points, 9.3 rebounds and 3.6, 3.6 assists while slashing 51.0, 41.7, 82.7. Where 13 comes into the equation is he is currently on pace to become the 13th player in league history to average at least 24 points while taking more than five threes per game with a 60-plus true shooting percentage. The 12 who have already done it, James Harden, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Kyrie Irving, Zach Levine, Kawhi Leonard, Damian Lillard, Devin Booker, LeBron James, Glenn Rice, Peja Stoyakovich and Boston Celtics, Isaiah Thomas. Do you see any other centers in that group? Like, again, aside from like current season LeBron, but this is 2016, 17 LeBron who joined that group. Like this is, it is totally unprecedented for a center to be this good as a volume scorer and floor stretcher. You know, we have guys like Kristaps Porzingis who takes threes, but doesn't make them. Joel Embiid follows and falls into that category as well. Sorry, who says that after saying there needs to be an all-star case for Kristaps Porzingis? What let me let me play both sides of the fence. Jokic, you know, <laughs> Jokic plays out on the perimeter, draws attention to the perimeter, and does take some threes, but not quite to the extent that Towns does. Just if you watch him play, the shot-making ability that he has as a catch-and-shoot guy, playing off the bounce, you know, controlling offense from the top of the key. Players his size are not supposed to be able to do that to the point that they never have. There has not been anybody like him before, and that gets glossed over too frequently. I, I don't I think it's just because he's in the wilderness in Minnesota, and maybe not so much this year, but they just whenever a player doesn't make the playoffs for a long time, and then the one year he did, you had Jimmy Butler there, we the assumption nationally or when you zoom out, or the laziest, you know, presumption would be. It's on his fault. It's like the Zach Levine yep. stuff in Chicago for so long. Right there with you. Let's go to the Pelicans. I can't use my Herb Jones one that I teased a few podcasts ago because I actually used it on the last podcast. And like I said, I didn't want to double dip. So if you want to know the bonkers Herb Jones stat that I came up with, go to the last mailbag podcast. The so, one you recorded at 4 a.m. because you couldn't sleep. <laughs> yeah, it was actually almost six in the morning. I started researching at like 4 a.m. And I was like, okay, I'll record this when I get up and just release it and say, what the hell? And I still couldn't, like, I was done. I was like, let me just record this. So, yeah. That was, uh, when, when you published that one, I was like, why didn't you ask me to join this one? And then I'm glad that you didn't message me at what would have been like 2 a.m. my time. 
It probably would have been good if you were on it just because my voice sounded like gravel on gravel. I've been there. Because I was so sick. I know you've been there, but like not like me talking for 57 minutes straight or whatever it was probably wasn't <laughs> the best, the best experience for everybody. Thanks for all those questions though. I did. I was in such a COVID written state. I really, nothing warms my heart more than when I get DMs from people with mailbag questions because they're not responding to the solicitation they're just asking. And I have like, I think four or five built up over the past week. I will get, we will get to them next time, I promise. And hopefully it won't be a solo mailbag that time. However, the Pelicans, my number is one. They rank- Well, it can't be the number of games that Zion's played because that's still zero. Yes. So they are first in the league in half-court offensive rebounding percentage. And I wanted to dig a little deeper into that number. So ever since they started the season three and 16, as we're recording this, they're actually over 500 at 11 and nine. They are still not surprisingly- first in half-court offensive rebounding percentage during that stretch. They are also first in the percentage of plays for which that accounts for their entire offense. They are so reliant on cleaning up their own misses. They are also, during that time as my light goes out here, and I'll plug, plug that back in in a second, um, they are also uh, first in the plays, second-chance plays that they're generating per miss on offense. They are fifth in the total points per 100 misses that they have, that they are generating. However, they're not super efficient in those situations still. They have been above the break three-point shooting when it's a second-chance opportunity. They're shooting almost 40%. That's great. It's like fifth in the league. They're like bottom 10 in nearly every other thing. Um, Their effective field goal percentage on second-chance opportunities is not that high. Zion probably helps them a ton there with his finishing and they'll have a higher percentage of their putbacks going in. But I found it interesting that it's not surprising that a team that has Jonas Valanciunas is good at offensive rebounding, but they've been pretty reliant on it. Even during this stretch of success, they are also second in the league. If you want a random stat here in the percentage of offensive rebounds, they grab after missing a long mid range jumper. And so I guess while having Brandon Ingram, on your team and even a Devontae Graham a little bit like that helps you out. So that's a deep cut right there. My, my, my immediate follow-up question. And I don't know if you have easy access to that uh, is what does their transition defense look like? Because in modern NBA basketball, we've seen that there's so much of a trade-off between crashing the offensive glass and getting back to play transition defense. And most coaches have moved away from the former in favor of the latter, unless you have just a, a, a really ridiculously talented offensive rebounder. So is that coming at the expense of transition defense, or is this a, a strength that isn't impacting the team elsewhere? When you're looking at their transition defense, and this is during the stretch that they've been above 500, they actually have the best transition defense in the league. So that's working nicely. Third, when you break it down to points per play. That's that's amazing. Like that's That is not supposed to happen. That could not be more anomalous. They are 21st in defense overall, though, during this stretch. So that part's not great, but it's it's New Orleans. Like we couldn't have expected too many positives here. They've been quietly like just Josh been, Hart, Brandon yeah. Ingram's passing. Devontae Graham has hit some some big shots. Jonas Valanciunas is well when he was in the lineup. Uh, I don't even know if he's returned yet. The league is all over the place. It's so hard. I, no one should feel bad for me or you. It's just so hard to cover the league at a league wide scale right now. It's just it's so difficult. <laughs> I think I can't remember if it was you and friend of the podcast, Jacob Born, or just Jacob that I was kind of griping about this too. But usually at this point in the season, with all the the different NBA math graphics that I produce on a daily and weekly basis, like 
I have most of the faces cut out to make those. But this season, it's like every morning, it's like, oh, got to find headshots for six more players who made their season debuts this time around. Like I have I have them prepped for Clay Thompson and guys we expect to make their debuts. But when we're just signing players off the streets, it's like, seriously, like another morning where I have to like grab a different computer and cut those out and email them to myself and throw them into Tableau. It's just talk. I mean, talk about an insignificant complaint, but it has made my life harder, too. Hopefully this settles down because of what that says also about the state of COVID in the league will be. Yeah, that too. And look, shout out to the guys who have kept the league up and running by signing all these 10-day contracts. I'm not a big fan of saying, oh, they're getting this opportunity they wouldn't otherwise have. It's true, but you're also just using glorified temp workers to meet your more lucrative bottom line that they're not necessarily, they're not, it's not even necessarily, they're not sharing into the extent that all these players under guaranteed contracts are. And yes, someone like, Lance Stevenson, very questionable, if terrible human being, still was able to earn a permanent contract with the Pacers. Yeah, there are situations like that. It looks like Wes Matthews will end up doing the same with Milwaukee, but he didn't even sign. I think they just signed him to a non-guaranteed deal at one point. Still, my whole point is just that shout out to those guys. They've kept the league running, as Chris Paul said, and that's not an overstatement. Oklahoma City Thunder, my my number is nine. So I looked at two different... Uh, like deep dive passing metrics here. One is potential assists per 36 minutes. And the other is field goal percentage on passes that would lead to assists. So I'm basically just calculating that by looking at actual assists versus potential assists, because by definition, potential assists are, are, are passes that would have led to assists had the shot been made. So if you look at the actual made shots versus the potential made ones, there's your field goal percentage on passes that would lead to assists. So among the 80 players who have played at least 500 minutes and recorded at least 200 potential assists, Josh Giddy ranks 21st in potential assists for 36 minutes at 13.7 and 15th in field goal percentage on passes that would lead to assists, 54.6%. And that last one is particularly impressive because he's playing for a Thunder team that ranks dead last in field goal percentage. So like if, if I had had the time to dive even deeper, like his, the relative boost that his passing is providing is even more substantial, but even with that raw number, he's at number 15. The only other players in the top 25 for both of those stats, there are eight others, hence nine being the stat here, Chris Paul, Trey young, DeJounte Murray, Russell Westbrook, LaMelo ball, Nikola Jokic, John Morant and Damian Lillard. Josh Giddy is with those eight players in that class. Those are some great names to be compared with. He has had a phenomenal rookie season. We've gotten to celebrate the the fact that he became the youngest player in league history to have a triple-double, but he has burst onto the scene as this potential centerpiece for the Thunder. He is that good as a passer. The reads that he makes, the the split-second decisions that he makes, it already feels like the game has slowed down, which doesn't typically happen for point guards in the NBA, even if they have international experience, until their second or third season. And it makes me wonder just how good his passing is going to be two years from now. I think a lot of it's going to rest on can he elevate his own offensive aggression? Because I think that's going to be important in leveraging those. Did you happen to look at how many of those potential assists his team is actually converting? And like how that is on like, what are they shooting off of Josh Kitty passes this season? It's not something that I've checked. Yeah, that's, that's the field goal percentage on the passes that would lead to assists. They're shooting 54.6% oh, okay. on that. So that's 15th among the qualified players. Which and that is, is again with a team that is dead last in field goal percentage in general. Yeah. That's a super impressive then just to have underscored what you said. I have a follow-up OKC stat. It's not really related to that, but it's something I, I stumbled upon in my research for this pod. Darius Baisley is second maybe i'm misremembering he's definitely in the top five in blocked 
three-point shots. Not his that are getting blocked, but three-point shots that he has blocked. I am marginally surprised that he is still on the roster. He's been too good defensively to get off the roster, and that's He's not even because so of He's been so bad offensively, though. You're – what is – you? yeah, what do you want, Poku to get some all-star votes, though, still? Absolutely. Like, okay. Moving – Moving right along to Phoenix, the one that you I'm, I'm mostly just I'm mostly disappointed that I, I spent too much draft capital on Darius Baisley in a fantasy league. Yeah, well, you I'm need just to check because those, of that. You need to check those emotions at the door. Fair enough. The Phoenix Suns. My number is there are a bunch of different ways I go with this, but my number is one for them again after using this for the Pelicans. Among every player in the league who's attempting at least three off the dribble three pointers per game, Devin Booker ranks first. And his conversion rate on those shots, 42.1%. That is by far and away a career high for him. His previous career high was 36.4% in 2017, 2018. That also happens to be the only other time that he shot better than 33.8% on off the dribble threes in a season. This seems sort of basic for Phoenix, but I think a lot of stuff is some people focus on their shot profile. We even talked about they don't get to the rim, but they don't, they just don't need to, at least not during the regular season. Um, Cam Johnson has been spectacular over the past few weeks and the aesthetics on his jumper are an aphrodisiac. So just go watch Cam, Cam Johnson, take jumpers, make or miss. I'm telling you, it's going to, it's going to rev your engine. I wanted to go with this because I think that that efficiency is such a, it's one of the reasons why you don't need to get to the rim if you're Phoenix, because you always had the threat of Devin Booker off the dribble to leverage, but he's been hitting his threes overall, looking at catch and shoot. Um, ju- just his efficiency on threes this year has been such a huge deal. But if you're going to shoot 42.1% on, he has almost 100 off the dribble three pointers so far this season. That's going to be monstrous for them when you're looking at their their postseason trajectory. Should they not be able to acquire someone who helps add pressure to the rim? Just a version of Devin Booker. Even when you've watched him play, I would hazard that he's just one of those guys you would estimate his career three point percentage or any given, with the exception of this year any given single season three-point percentage, you're going to estimate it as being much higher than it actually was because the shot, the aesthetics on his shot just look so good too. And to see it come together so nicely for him this season, to now have now just have an off-the-dribble three-pointer in his arsenal um, to be able to hit the pull-up, even if they're not the most complicated off-the-dribble jumpers. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't after watching footage on them. Devin Booker is spectacular, and he's added this sort of layer to his offensive game, and he deserves to be an all-star. and probably would make my all NBA ballot at this point. I believe how many all-stars is Phoenix going to have two. I don't really know where your third one is coming from. Unless you think Aiden's going to crack. Maybe the, Aiden. The I mean, if you're giving a spot to Porzingis, then it you're not fun. though. That's what made that clear. No one should be giving a spot to Kristaps Porzingis. So you still think two though? You don't think Aiden will get in? I, I'd be pretty shocked if I guess I'm trying to think of just the front court players that would be, Kawhi's out. Anthony Davis is out. Will Paul George have played enough? I don't know. I think it's going to be close. I could see him getting in as like an injury or COVID replacement. No, enough with it. No, I'm not doing injury or COVID replacement right now. Is he making the first iteration of the all-star ballot? Probably not. Probably not. But I mean, you you know, I've talked about this a bajillion times, how I want the all-star rosters to expand. So I like giving credit to the guys who might eventually get in even if they're not featured on that first selection. Are you going to pick Mello in case they do the thing where they give you like the, you know, attaboy career achievement spot? Should God, I hope not. I hate that so that much. That one you're against. I was so against that. I'm it's not, not I, It's not a legacy. Like, it shouldn't be a legacy achievement. It's supposed to be this season. 
Yes, but you're also working outside the confines of the roster count at the moment. So yes, I'm just going to absolutely. The strictures within which you work remain puzzling and very inconsistent. I'll take it. Do you want to take us? Speaking of taking, do you want to take us to the Portland Trailblazers? Yeah, Portland Trailblazers. My number is 55.8. That is the league worst effective field goal percentage allowed by the Portland Trailblazers. This team's defensive rebounding has been pretty good. They foul too frequently. They're number 21 in free throws per field goal attempt. They can't stop players from scoring, hence that league worst effective field goal percentage. They rarely force turnovers. They're number 20 in opponent turnover percentage. It's basically a continuation and in some ways an amplification of last year's defensive struggles, which wasn't supposed to happen given the slight personnel changes and the coaching changes to Chauncey Billups. This team is just a defensive disaster, and it's not going to get any better anytime soon. And I, I think it's worth highlighting just how bad it's been, particularly in that we cannot possibly get the right players to take contested shots department. I think the other thing, too, and this is from um, Christian Narshu. Also, he works for B-Ball Index. I've cited them a few times now on this pod. The Blazers have the most aggressive pick-and-roll defensive coverage in the league. The issue with that is they do not have the personnel to have that type of pick-and-roll coverage, which is why when Terry Stotts was there, you would predominantly see them play drop with Nurkic. And Nurkic is really suffering the brunt of that. There are are 100, or excuse me, there are 70 players who've contested at least 110 shots at the rim this season. He has one of the five worst marks allowed at the basket, 70.4% on the season. The only players with worse marks allowed, none of them are bigs or primary considered primary rim protectors. Harrison Barnes, Anthony Edwards, James Harden are the only players in front of him. I Buddy Heald has statistically their... been a better rim protector than Yusuf Nurkic this season. <laughs> that's, that's less than ideal, I would say. But it's also in no way surprising because – this team just doesn't have a defensive identity and whatever it tries to do, it doesn't have the personnel to do. It's yeah. They, and it's, it's it's not funny, but I will say I like the acquisitions of Norman Powell, Larry Nance Jr. Robert Covington separately. I mentioned this on our last podcast though. So I don't want to spend a ton of time on it. When you look back at a lot of the stuff that Neil O'Shea did, the failure to make the actual blockbuster move is what feels like it did this era of the Blazers in because even when they got to the conference finals, knew they weren't going to get out of there. There was very clearly a cap on a CJ Dame backcourt being the fulcrum of everything you do. If you weren't able to get that third star at the wings or a real star big man without giving up CJ McCollum, you probably should have looked much sooner into moving CJ McCollum. It's the callous view and the Blazers assembled a lot of good teams still but that is going to end up being the fatal flaw of the Damian Lillard error, I think is pretty clear. I'm right there with you. I think the the idea was always that if they were going to make a run, it was going to be because Dame went nuclear, which he, he has done for significant stretches in key situations. But the idea of him doing that for every single round of the playoffs was always unrealistic. The Sacramento Kings. So I looked at, I wanted to, I think people have been too low on De'Aaron Fox this season. He's not been great, especially on defense. They've also changed his offensive role a little bit. But I saw going around Twitter the other day that Nick Sands wouldn't trade Emmanuel quickly for De'Aaron Fox, which was just kind of like a, a GTFO moment for me. So I looked at B-Ball Index's finishing score, which seeks, this is per their website, which seeks to capture how well a player scores at the rim on the attempts they have once there. And doing so 
while capturing and adjusting for variables that may impact performance, such as spacing, if they were creating their own shot, the location of shots, et cetera, et cetera. De'Aaron Fox is third in B-Ball Index's overall finishing score. He's also, this is among everyone who's played at least 500 minutes, he's also thir- uh, he also has the lowest shot quality at the rim of anyone within that category. Some of that seems self-inflicted when you look at his takeoff points, his decision-making, but the fact that he can still have such a high finishing score while generating such low-quality looks at the rim, I think is a testament to what happens when he does put pressure on the basket. There are things to quibble about with his game. His assist percentage has never been lower on drives, yada, yada, yada. He's still shooting 64% at the rim this season. I still think this is someone who is a fringe all-star. I wouldn't put him in the all-star conversation this year, but... Would he get in as an injury replacement? (laughs) Maybe if they expand the rosters to 25 players, De'Aaron Fox will make it. But when you're just looking at the numbers he's putting up and still being able to finish like this, if this is his down year, that's a really good basketball player. I am curious to see what the Kings do from here. And we do need to see more from just De'Aaron Fox overall. He's not hitting the step-back jumpers at as high a clip as he was last season. His shot selection from the perimeter just remains super iffy. And they've, it seems like Sacramento's trying to streamline his role where Tyrese Halliburton's going to be the engine a lot of the time trying to, to play make. And that can be a problem because De'Aaron Fox is still not this threat off the ball. But he remains a pretty good to awesome finisher. I'm actually a little surprised you didn't go the Tyrese Halliburton direction. That's what I was expecting, given how much we both loved him going into last year's draft and what he's done during the the most recent portion of this season, where he went from as a rookie being that guy who could capably fill every single kind of role for the Sacramento Kings to, as you just put it, you know, starting to become part of the engine of the Kings and in recent weeks taking over more as a featured scorer and being really efficient while doing so. The jump that he's already making in year two is so substantial that I was just surprised you you went the Fox route, even if he does deserve that love. I just, I feel like you gave Tyrese Halliburton more responsibility and he's responding. He's been great. It's yeah. just, uh, I, I guess me, I guess I was past the point of people thinking that Tyrese Halliburton wasn't like a spectacular Fair. pick at number 12, but you go. I could have went with Rashawn Holmes' flip shots just because that percentage remains absurdly <laughs> high, even though everyone knows that that's what he's good at. Maybe he just like highlighted his contract or something and like how cheap it was. And something then, that hasn't ever been And mentioned. then said, this would have been original, but said that the Charlotte Hornets should have been fined a draft pick for allowing him to sign right. that contract with the game. Absolutely. Never yeah. said that before. Not right. once on this podcast. Right there with you. San Antonio Spurs, my number is five. That is DeJounte Murray's jersey number. And I just want to give him some love here because I think the Spurs overall struggles have sort of masked the attention that he should be getting for the improvement he's made this year. He's averaging 18.2 points, 8.3 rebounds, 8.9 assists, just 2.5 turnovers per game, albeit without the most efficient shooting. According to the NBA math RPR MVP predictor, which factors in the lack of team success, Murray is at number 30 this season. Um, if the all-stars were chosen by this metric alone, which they shouldn't be. And they expanded be, the roster to. And they expanded players. the roster. <laughs> no, but even without a roster expansion, he would be the first injury replacement in the Western conference, which I think puts into. <laughs> I had that. I I'm swear sorry. I had that written down even before our conversations. <laughs> that, that is like, so <laughs> unbelievably on. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. There's, there's a theme for this podcast. No, no. But I think like just. <laughs> The fact that he's at number 30 with the team success or lack thereof working against him, the fact that he would be the first injury replacement in the Western Conference by this metric, it speaks volumes about how much his stock should be rising. Like This is a guy who I think 
should at least be in the mix for one of the 30 best players in basketball right now. He's not going to feature in that conversation as much because the Spurs haven't been able to excel. They've had so many different lineup combinations, probably more so than, than even the teams most affected by the pandemic as they try to, to bring in new younger players, try to figure out what they have. They, they go to work without like an, a, a truly established veteran star. And he's becoming that guy where the game has clearly slowed down for him. The passing strides that he's made in the half court set in particular are phenomenal. He just, it feels like he has a better understanding of how to, to be the engine that makes the Spurs offense, at least attempt to go. He's been great this season. I think he could still harp on. He probably could be more efficient as a scorer, but to have the, just that not a great shooter yet yeah. level to his to his game and i don't think at this point we just have to figure he'll never be that guy maybe it's different but i i sort of wonder if he would be a lot better if he got to play a role independent of Derek white totally and i'm just those two players just seem like there's too much overlap in both their skills like their strengths and their weaknesses that they might be better off in higher not just having their minutes staggered but just untethered from one another completely and we saw san antonio basically try and do that until this season yep. which is why i think that maybe Derek white should be on the the chopping block and not just because i want there to be an active trade deadline going into this season you and i had an argument about which team had the fewest future all-stars on the roster and the spurs were my pick like even beyond the orlando magic the houston rockets the oklahoma city thunder because I really didn't think that anyone on this roster had that kind of upside. Like when your leading candidates were Derek White, DeJounte Murray, and Keldon Johnson, that's that's enough said right there. But I do think that Murray has worked himself into that conversation where the Spurs pretty clearly have one guy who most likely will represent the Western Conference at some point in his career. My follow-up stat for the Spurs is up teams, and that is the amount of wiggle that there is in Josh Primo's game when he has the ball in his hands. So you've got a times infinity and an upteenth in there. And, and I, I like the numbers you're throwing out here. I appreciate that. My numbers are some advanced mathematics. This one's going to be super advanced, this number. So try and stay with me for the jazz, the Utah jazz finishes off with this podcast. 23. That is Royce O'Neal's Jersey number. They hey, remain, back to back Jersey numbers. They remain so reliant on him defensively going up against the opposition's best player that at this point it's almost criminal that that's how reliant they are on him so he guards the number one option on the other team according to the usage rate 32.3 percent of the time the next player on the jazz that ranks second in this metric is joe ingles at 20.4 makes sense him coming off the bench whatever that gap though nearly a 12 percentage point gap is the third largest in the nba from the player on a team that spends the most time guarding the number one option to the second to the person that spends the second most time, the only players in front of him, can you guess either one of him? Absolutely not. I think you could guess one of them I gave you. Lou Dort in OKC. I don't think that surprised you. This one got me. But then you think about the roster and you're like, okay, Gary Harris in Orlando. Hmm. I think I, I would be surprised by that one just because it feels like Orlando has so many young pieces that it would be experimenting and trying to figure out who has the defensive chops. But it's also like, who? Aside from Garrett, like, it's not... It's yeah, yeah exactly. I don't have an answer. So they, they might actually be the most logical pick because they spread out after him at Solo. But mm -hmm. the other thing that I found interesting is so when you look at his average guarded usage rate, it's like 
22 something for Royce O'Neal. The gap between him and second place is basically three percentage points, which seems small. That's actually the largest gap between one and two in the NBA in a single team. So this is just like when he's not guarding the number one option, it's probably because he's on number two or you're never going to basically see him. Like he never has the opportunity to catch a beat is what I'm getting at. Because whether it's wings, guards, you're talking point of attack, you're talking some movement shooters. He's had to cover like the whole positional archetypal spectrum here. And kudos to him. I don't know that he's as good defensively this season as he was last year, but just the the scope of his role, like I said, is criminal. And that's why I think that the Jazz really need to swing for the fences on a trade here this season. If it costs you Joe Ingles, who's been, I don't want to say low-key awful this season, but he's not been, he had a nice stretch, but he just has not been great for them before going in health and safety protocols. But I would be looking to trade Ingles or Clarkson. I'm not trading Boyan Bogdanovich. He's just, I saw some stuff floating around about that. Is he expendable to the offense? Maybe, because Utah's offense is fucking thermonuclear. But you have a six foot seven inch wing who's averaging over 17 points per game on better than 60 true shooting. Like, let's keep I that wouldn't guy. get rid of that. Let's, Absolutely. let's keep that guy. <laughs> would you say that Royce O'Neal is the best player who's ever worn number 23 in the NBA? Yeah, he has to be, right? No, nobody I think else. So. I think so. My, my follow up number for Utah is zero. And that is the number of people, despite Utah's history in the last few years of flaming out in the playoffs, zero is the number of people who should be believing that this team can't win a championship. I will say, left alone, they can win a title. But they are the team where it feels like they need a move if they want to. When you look at the five teams to be that are most likely to win a title, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, Golden State, Phoenix, Utah, they are the team of that bunch that I think needs a move the most. And I don't think it I needs would agree to be, with that. I don't think it needs to be a large scale move. I've seen people No, it's a can, periphery depth piece that can just provide a little bit more defensive juice so that O'Neal doesn't have to do this. And I would say you probably might even need to I think the issue with them is that if you're they're so deep that if you're let's say you're able to trade for Tory Craig, which you could, and he makes sense, he's probably not consistently cracking the top 9 of your playoff rotation. So with what they need to do is find a player that would do that. And Josh Richardson's been the name that I've come back to for them. I think he, they're to me, they're a Josh Richardson away from maybe being the title favorite is basically, I wouldn't put them. I don't know if I'd put them over Phoenix or Golden State or Milwaukee necessarily. If they traded for Josh Richardson right here, right now, I'd pick them over Brooklyn. I'd probably pick them over Brooklyn right now. So maybe that's not that spicy, but they're that type of a player away from really just entering the, does this team deserve to be not a title contender, but the title favorite discussion. And right now I think that's really reserved for those top four teams. And I'm not, I, I kind of have Brooklyn out of there to be honest with you, where I look at Milwaukee, right with you. Phoenix yeah. and Golden state. I think Utah has the chance with a Josh Richardson size move to enter that, that discourse. I might end up having them be my absolute favorite, even if they don't make a Josh Richardson size move. And I've, I've picked them in the playoffs each of the last few years, just because I do ultimately believe in what this organization has been doing, especially as Donovan Mitchell has more time in that featured role in high stakes situations. There have just been some unlucky factors. Like there, there have been key injuries to them in the playoffs each of the last few years. They did run into a bad matchup three years ago that Rudy Gobert wasn't as effective against. And unfortunately that's still being held against him to this day, even if it shouldn't be like this, this offense, this season, as you put it, just thermonuclear, and that still might be selling it short because it's been so explosive and so consistently explosive. 
And by the way, if you're looking to simplify the Royce O'Neal defensive workload, he is among every player that's logged at least 500 minutes this year. He's ninth in matchup difficulty in the league. So that's, that's super high. Can you guess who's first? I'm going to go with Dort again. He is in front of him, but he is also third. Hit me with it. Matisse Eibel is first. Fair enough. I think it's easier to get there when he's played 722 minutes and you're looking at Royce O'Neal, who is at, as we record this, almost over 1,100. So, but yeah, Royce O'Neal, the Jazz need you, but they, they also need to give you some help. <laughs> That's 23 in league history. That'll do it for us, and that'll wrap up the one stat to know about every NBA team this season. This was fun. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have not done so already, please, please, pretty please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Hardwood Knox wherever you're getting your podcast. Spotify is a rating system now. Some of you have already headed over there and rated us. If you use Spotify, definitely rate us there. Whether you use iTunes or not, we ask for a five-star rating and review. You can provide feedback in the review. Those help us a ton, but please throw us the five-star rating. If you've made it here this long and have not subscribed to Hardwood Knox, please. Just consider throwing us the permanent subscription, sub-mediocre basketball analysis at its finest. I don't know how many triple-double negatives are in that sentence, but it exists. Follow us on Twitter, at Hardwood Knox. Follow Adam on Twitter, at Frommel09. I'm at Dan Favalli, at F-A-V-A-L-E. We are on YouTube, youtube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We are on Instagram, at Hardwood underscore Knox. Until next time, I do the shout-out to the one, the only, a potential COVID or injury replacement to the all-star roster, depending on how many people are injured or suffering from COVID entry into leagues, health and safety protocols, whatever. The one and only Frankie Lakina.